a play by G.K. Chesterton uh, called Magic, a fantastic comedy. Maybe is it a fantastical comedy? Fantastical, I think. Fantastical? Okay. Um, So, uh, this is is a play. Uh, I think uh, you could probably find it if you google around you can find the text of the play or you can you can watch the play some people have performed it and and put it on youtube i mean the uh i feel like uh i wasn't uh too blown away by the acting on on the version i watched but i I, you know was that the one you sent us friend the second one i sent you is the one i watched okay I, I I watched that one too. I mean, it, I mean, it, it okay. It didn't change my life, but I didn't think the acting was that bad. No, uh, no, no. You know, it was the Duke. The Duke. The Duke. The Duke <laughs> did not do it for me. Okay, I, like, I, I'm with you. The Duke was kind of annoying, and we'll explain who the Duke is, I suppose, when we when we talk about brief synopsis of the, of the play. But I I feel I feel like the entire play is just so like serious and dark and passionate. You you kind of need like just a Duke. Even though he himself is kind of annoying, it just like without him, the entire play is just so. No, it's... I I didn't mind the the character of the Duke. I I, I minded the voice of the actor, but like, I, he, he was a very strange voice, and you you could have played him uh, with a normal voice, and it would have been fine. I suppose. I mean, I feel like the the voice is also trying to contribute, like. Because again, when everyone's speaking in such dramatic tones all the time, and there's not a lot of laughter, just having who, who, someone who speaks like, like, oh, you know, it's so, yes, you know. All right, all right, all right, we get it, we get it, and so you endorse the, uh, the, the, the performance. <laughs> no, I'm just, uh, I'm playing devil's advocate here, you know. It's like right, I think right. without him, the play would be worse, even if I don't like him, you know. Yeah, no, I, and then there's a, uh, oh, and there you can also read the play. It's available uh, on Project Gutenberg, so that's you know that's a different experience if you don't want your uh, your sense of the play to be formed by one particular performance that happens to be available on YouTube. Anyway, so let, let's talk about how this this play came to be. So G.K. Chesterton, he was friends with um, with George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright. Um. And he he was not primarily um, a playwright. He was a, a journalist, and he wrote short stories. I, he famously, he wrote the Father Brown short stories that were later turned into a TV series. But uh, George Bernard Shaw is the one who convinced him to write the play, and he did so with the uh, by writing him. And he said this in the letter. I shall deliberately destroy your credit as an essayist, as a journalist, as a critic, as a liberal, as everything that offers your laziness as a refuge, until until starvation and shame drive you to serious dramatic parturition. Okay. I shall repeat my public challenge to you, vaunt my superiority, insult your corpulence, torture Belloc. If necessary, call on you and steal your wife's affections by intellectual and athletic displays until you contribute something to British drama. 
Um, so I mean, and then he he wrote the play. Um, in, in you know the the I I believe he sent the letter in 1908, and he didn't produce the play. Didn't uh come out till 1913, but it was a success. It had a 165 uh, performance run in in England, and it, it had a similar run in New York. So you know, it was a it was a big splash, and it made Chesterton more money than than his other work. Um, I, I so don't know that. I didn't realize it was such a big commercial success. I sort of assumed it it like faded pretty quick. No, no, it didn't. No, he made if he had kept writing plays, he probably could have made a lot more money. Uh, I mean, he he did write a few more, but he didn't make it like he didn't become a playwright the way Shaw was. Um. So, um, let's um. Let's let's go ahead and just issue a spoiler warning, and we can kind of give a synop- synopsis of the plot, uh, and um, we can kind of discuss what uh, what our impression was of both the performance and the play. Yeah, sounds good. Um, okay. Why don't why don't uh why don't you go first, Wancho? Sure. So, a brief synopsis. The play opens, and there's a woman in the woods. It's very shadowy and strange. I actually looked up the text of the play to make sure that the staging that I saw wasn't taking any egregious liberties. But indeed, the stage direction um, indicates that this should be, yeah, like the scene, this scene should be very strange and sinister. And this woman meets this man who's wearing this cloak he's a hooded man sort of the darkness and the shadow and he speaks to her in rhymes and riddles and she thinks that he is a fairy and he explains that human beings you know they look for fairies uh he says you know in toadstools and tree branches but really fairies are these great like magical creatures so it's all a little dark and a little confusing um but anyway then you just you just uh turn to this totally normal living room and uh in the living room there's a doctor and a local priest it's just an english village and they're in the in the in one of the rooms of the the house of the local duke and they're having this conversation and the rest of the play really takes place in this room so there's just this weird little prelude but right so, so I mean, the premise of the play is that there's this eccentric duke, and he's got. I don't think they're quite his children, but they're they're his charges. So they're relatives of some kind. Or say that again. His niece and nephew. His niece and nephew. Thank you. Um, his niece and nephew are coming to visit, and and they're just two very different types. The niece will believe in anything, and the the nephew will believe in nothing. And and this and the play is all about their relationship to the paranormal, basically, right? They, they so the niece is a believer and the nephew is not, and uh, to, to sort of mediate the the the, uh, the tension between them, the duke has invited a magician, and uh, you know, and you know, not not a you know not a like a Harry Houdini magician, supposedly not not a uh, 
not not a for real magician, but that that's sort of the the tension of the play. So the right. magician shows up, and um, the uh, the nephew is just being a real jerk about it. Like he's just insulting the guy and telling him he knows how he does all his tricks, and he starts doing increasingly uh, impressive magic tricks. And the nephew has harder and harder time figuring out what's going on until he turns a light in the distance from the color red to the color blue. And I, I don't know why this particular magic trick sends the nephew over the edge, but it does because he just he just can't he doesn't know how this one is done. And he is so he must be a sensitive guy because he starts losing his mind. Like he starts. Like he's, he's, you know, he has a, essentially he has a nervous breakdown and, uh, cause he's, he's losing his worldview. Um, and I guess, you know, I guess he's maybe sort of constitutionally, you know, not, not very, not a very sturdy personality. So this, this is enough to send him over the edge. Yeah. Well, like um, you see hints of this going throughout, like every time the, the magician does something like impressive, he he sort of like looks visibly agitated. He's like, I, I I know how you did I know how you did that. Obviously, of course, just wires, of course. Uh you can see like he gets more and more stressed out. So it, it does build up to his going insane at some point. Are you guys familiar with the well actually meme? Uh like the nerd going well actually? You mean that? Yes. Uh, yes. yeah. He's the well actually guy. <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of a pain. Everyone's trying to enjoy the magic tricks. He's like, I know this one, I know that one, I know this one. It's all fake. And everybody's no, like, if, Yeah. If you were alive today, you'd post memes of Bill Nye the Science Guy and or like Neil deGrasse Tyson or you'd have a t shirt that says I effing love science or like that this is the kind of person we're talking about. Yeah, like that, but like it's not like an endearing way, it's like in a super annoying way. Like he just sort of like has made this his identity to just not only have that, but also to like. Yeah, I don't. I don't find people who are into Bill Nye the Science Guy particularly endearing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's space for that, but like it's it's when it's when you also try to ruin everybody else's fun. Like that's who this guy is, right? It's not enough for him yeah. to believe what he believes. He has to like like prove how everybody else in the room is a chunk. Yeah. Right, and you know, and and he he's got a good reason not to like the magician or the conjurer, as they call him in the play. I mean, it, it appears, and 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 you know, I think he's reasonable in believing this that the dude's exploiting his sister. So I can kind of understand why he'd not be a fan of that. That's true. That's a really fair point. Is that, yeah, like there's there's something going on there, kinda, and he's very defensive of his of his sister. So he also has this this bent towards industry progress scientism rationalism so there's a priest and a doctor who are also in the mix who also i think sort of serve to mediate between the you know they're they're always sort of uh diffusing the situation when the the magician and the nephew get angry at each other and they also are able to provide sort of their own perspectives um but uh, at one point i think the the doctor says to the nephew you know, not everyone can just eat petrol the way you do or something like that. And so he takes a jab at the nephew who's recently returned from America and he thinks he's a hotshot businessman, you know, and he's going to sort of, he's bringing the world into the 20th century and really 
really helping people shake off the prejudices and the superstitions of a bygone era. Yeah, so let's let's pick up with the synopsis. He goes insane after seeing this one crazy trick, and nobody knows how the magician did it. Um, so he's in his bed, he's just off his rocker, his sister is sitting there with him, trying to console him. Um, and there's some there's some sub-scenes that we sort of glossed over, but we'll, it's not super important for the time being. Um, and then the doctor comes back down and says to the magician, look, this guy is just going insane. Like, you wouldn't understand the details because you're not a doctor like me. But really, I think what he needs is for you to tell him how you did that last trick. Um, and the guy says, I forget what he says for the first. He says no or, or what? He says, you wouldn't believe me? Yeah, he says, yeah. he says a number of things. He says no, and they press him, and he says no, and they press him, and he says, no, you'll never believe me. The reason I won't tell you is you won't believe me, and the reason you won't believe me is it's the simplest answer of all. So he, they really push him, and he really refuses to say yes. And then the Duke comes in and offers to pay him and pays him some ridiculous amount of money just to give the answer because the Duke has a lot of money and is a very amiable guy. And then the magician tells him, he says, here's the secret, is that it wasn't a trick, is that I actually did it. And of course, they all, they're like, we paid you for that answer. And he's like, fine. He rips up the check. He's like, I don't care. It was real. I did it for re- for, for, for real. Right. And uh, what happens, so, so throughout the whole first bit of the play, there's sort of a, a tension running through, like whether you know, magic is real or not, or whether what the magician is doing is real or not. And you could have written a play where you sort of lived in that tension, but the, 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 the play definitively settles the question. Um, and, uh, you know, in the world of the play, the magic is a hundred percent real. And what they do is, 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 is then there's a sort of an episode where, um, there's like essentially a haunting in the house. And for a very brief period of time, everyone who's in the house, including the, uh, the doctor and the, uh, the priest who actually doesn't believe in the supernatural, as far as I can tell, are they're, they're all forced to sort of believe in it for a very brief period of time. Uh, but the magician comes back and he, he, he banishes the spirits and he comes up with a, he comes up with a way the trick could have been faked. And he goes and he, he tells the lie is that, that he's come up with so the guy can be restored to sanity. Um, and um, then, uh, in, you know, the play ends sort of on a happy note and by him marrying the sister who he's... Well, an important question there is that he comes down from having told the lie to the, to the man, mm-hmm. uh, the sick man, and everybody else crowds him and they're like, so what is it? What was the explanation? You have to tell us. And he very importantly says, no, I won't tell you. Because what happened here is real and you know it. And if I tell you my lie, then in a half an hour I'm going to leave and you're going to be like, well, of course. I mean, everybody could have seen that. And then you won't believe it again. And you won't have learned the lesson that you should learn from this. Um and then he rides off into the sunset with the, with the girl because they fall madly in love somehow. Um, right, and the, the magical mechanism the 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 conjurer is using 
is essentially spirits, right? He's he's doing uh, using demons or spirits to do his magic, and they're not good spirits; they're evil spirits. He's using uh, theurgy, and it's it's gone awry. It's you know, it's he he's not happy about it. And this is you know, this is where um, you can tell that uh, you know that G. K. Chesterton has got a particular perspective on the world, right? He's He's got a supernatural perspective, but he's not, he, you know, he's, he was a pretty devout Catholic and he's not totally comfortable with, um, sort of this, the spiritualist, you know, environment of his time or, uh, spiritualist, um, is that how you pronounce that word? I think that's um, right. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, it's, I think it's important to situate this play because he talks about, uh, doing, um, table turning or table tapping and and the thing about about the you know the early uh 20th century is that there was there was this huge uh spiritualist fad that was ongoing that kind of caught on uh shortly after um after darwin uh the theory of, of evolution became prominent um, so the the thing about the theory of evolution is is it's associated with Darwin. There's this other dude, um, Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, who was a uh, sort of a, a a co-author of the theory and, and was sort of credited 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 with it as well as the time. And, and the reason we don't hear about him as much is because after he came up with the theory of evolution, he got very much he got very much into spiritualism. And he's, he's, he's founded the, uh, Society for Psychical Research in England. And, uh, there was this huge explosion of interest in, uh, the paranormal or spiritualism after this, after, um, after the theory of evolution, uh, emerged sort of like, you know, in the latter half of the 19th century, early 20th century, and there was a you know, there was a lot of fakers, the Fox sisters, um, and then there was, uh, but but this is something that uh, Chesterton would have been, uh, you know, he would have been aware aware of, and, and you can see it in his autobiography. He he talks about some of his early experiences uh, with uh, with a, a Ouija board. Um, so he writes, "My brother and I used to play with." Uh, planchette or what the americans called the ouija board but we were among the few i imagine who played in a mere spirit of play nevertheless i would not altogether rule out the suggestion of some that we were playing with fire or even with hellfire in the words that were written for us there was nothing ostensibly degrading but any amount that was deceiving i saw quite enough of the thing to be able to testify with complete certainty that something happens which is not the ordinary in not in the ordinary sense natural or produced by the normal and conscious human will whether it is produced by some subconscious but still human force or by some powers good bad or indifferent which are external to humanity i would not myself attempt to decide the only thing i will say with complete confidence about the mystic and invisible power is that it tells lies the lies may be larks or they may be lures to the imperiled soul, or they may be a thousand other things, but whatever they are, they are not truths about the other world or for that matter about this world. So, you know, he's, he's, 
he's writing in, in a different time. And I think it might be hard for, I think part of the reason why the play does not have continued resonance with modern uh, readers or theater goers, or it's not as popular today as it was when it initially came out is that these, 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 you know, these themes were not as, they're not as prominent anymore, right? You know, people, when the play came out, people were going to spiritualists, you know, the, the, the Fox sisters had just died, the, you know, people took these things a little more seriously, as did G.K. Chesterton, right? He's not, you know, he's not, uh, He's not saying like, yeah, I, I played with a, a Ouija board and it's BS. No, he, he's he's <laughs> very open to the the possibility that he was talking to ghosts or, or demons or something. Um, yeah, which I imagine puts him in a minority somewhere along the line. Because like, I mean, there were all sorts of rationalists who said, I mean, that's fake. There's no way it's real. And there's all sorts, sorts of people who followed the fashionable trends and went to these seances and table turnings and all these things. But he was sort of caught between both worlds in that he thought people shouldn't do it, but not because it was fake, but because he believed it was real and he believed that there was yeah. something malevolent behind it. Well, yeah, clear, I mean, clearly that's the line he's taking in the play. Yeah. Um, the Conjurer is an interesting character. He was hard to pin down, and I felt like he shifted over the course of the play quite a bit. How so? Well, at the beginning, it just seemed like he loved entertaining people, maybe. Or he loved, you know, the stolen moment with the girl when they both thought they were in a fairy tale. But then for the second half of the play, it becomes increasingly clear that he's this tortured soul. Maybe that he's torturing himself. It's really pretty dark. And then he says that he's served the enemies of God and... He begs for mercy from God, and uh, in like a moment of terrible pride, he sort of succumbs to to his you know occult practices once again. So I don't know. I just I just thought that he 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 didn't evolve the way I would have expected him to. You know, from based on the first act of the play. Yeah. So his he confess he he explains when he's talking to the girl. This sort of fills out his backstory. And I think Fran talked about this, that he dabbled in the occult, and that's where he met these demons. And in his job as a traveling magician, he doesn't regularly call upon these demons, but they're always sort of whispering to him and trying to tempt him to use their powers that they offer. Um, so the specific scene where he uses them to sort of change the color of the light, and I think it was the sun, maybe? Or maybe it was just something else random? No, no, it was, um, it was the doctor's lamp. Yeah, okay, so the color of the and, doctor's and, lamp. You know, it's very, very... It's a little on the nose, but the doctor talks about it as like, yes, my red lamp, the symbol of science and medicine and rationalism. Yeah, it's a little on the nose. I think I missed that. That's, it's a little much, yeah. But, uh, it's a little, yeah, you, you know what? I will say this about Chesterton. I haven't read too much of his work, but I, you know, I've read, I read, I read another uh, short story of his. It was a Father Brown story. And I was like, wow, this is like a little bit too on the nose. And I got I got a little bit of that energy from this play. He's not he's extremely witty. I don't think he's very subtle. No. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean his wit his wit is very nice to read. It, like it's very tight. I do say, like, I feel like whatever he writes or when it's when it's a play, you kind of see him 
like you know like all the characters kind of sound the same on some sort of fundamental level not totally but like you can kind of hear the same like speech patterns and and wittiness behind the scenes well yeah. you know you know he wasn't a subtle person he was six foot four 300 pounds that's true yeah. yeah he was a big guy he ended up dying of like congestive heart failure or something um so where was well, I? what was i talking about again sorry i derailed you um no worries oh yeah so the moment where the where the magician sort of gives and uses his powers is a moment where he and the and the irish businessman who's the guy who goes insane later are having a big fight and they're up in each other's faces and they're threatening each other intimidating each other and he's saying it's fake it's all fake it's all fake and he's right up in his face and then he you can see he's like really sort of struggling and try to hold himself back and that's the moment where he gives in and causes the light to change um, so I don't think it's quite as dramatic a character shift as, as Carlos, as, as you, as you might've said, because it makes sense to me that he's sort of like this sort of playful character early on. And it's only when he's put in this dramatic situation that the earlier demons come out and becomes more dramatic, you know? Right. Right. I think it, it may, it's coherent. It just, it just took a pretty dark turn. I was kind of taken aback. Oh, by the, like the, like it went from, uh, sort of lighthearted to, uh, <laughs> you know, to horror movie a little too fast. Yeah, a little, maybe a little too fast for me, but you know, I gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Although the the overall arc from like fun fairies in the wilderness having a having a nice story and talking about magic, going to like demons haunting the house and threatening everybody there, is probably a point he wanted to make. Because uh, if he thought that all these people doing the occult stuff in the early twentieth century were playing with fire and doing dangerous things. I suppose sort of framing it that way is like, haha, we're all just playing with the fairies and then look, boom, demons. It's like his his way of warning people not to go to seances and like, you know, fun table turnings just to just to try to like talk with the spirit because like, no, that's dangerous. Well, I mean it was a thing that people took very seriously back then. I mean, um Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the the author of the Sherlock Holmes books, he was like, dude believed in fairies. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, there was some hoax, actually. There's these, like, young yeah, women like, took doctored pictures of this fairy-like thing. And then even after they said it was fake, we made it up, he still, like, went to amazing lengths to try to prove that. No, it actually was real. Because um, no, he was still caught up in this Obvious-looking fake. I mean, I, you know, if you can look the pictures up, it's not... Well, I mean, we live in the era of Photoshop. Maybe back then it was easier to get people to like really think that was real, you know. I just think it's funny that the the author of the Sherlock Holmes book got taken in by like a couple of teenage girls. <laughs> it was like turned out to be very bad at inductive reasoning. <laughs> you know, like what you're gonna he's do? More of a, he was more of a Watson. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. That's great. What do you guys think of the niece in the play? As I think about it, she strikes me as being more and more important a character. Really? I, I don't know. I just I didn't think about her very much. What makes you think that much? Well, here's a nice moment when all the men were arguing. And they're arguing sometimes in her presence as if she's not even there. The nephew, the Irish nephew who's hot-headed, and the conjurer are arguing about her. The doctor and the priest are arguing when the doctor says, 
oh, religion is just for weak-minded women, you know, the women, the women go and they're religious, but, but we men, we know better. And, uh, and at one point she says, they're arguing about the conjurer's tricks. And she says, now I'll show you the next trick, the disappearing lady. And she storms out of the room. And I thought, I thought there's something to her, you know, she seems to have maybe some kind of, some kind of wisdom that, that eludes the rest of them. I mean, I think I think that's right. I mean, so the doctor who is very much a skeptic and agrees with the uh, the nephew over the niece when it comes to uh, matters metaphysical, but he he you know the the uh, the priest points out that he's willing to let her uh, take care of the uh, the nephew while he's going mad. Yeah. So he trusts her. He notes that, like, you know, he trusts her completely, and, and he also says, "Well, look at them. Like the 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 niece will believe in anything, and the nephew will believe in nothing, and look, look who's going crazy." Um. So you know, the 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 priest has this very uh, sort of like utilitarian case for religion, right? He's saying like, "Look, like people need to believe in stuff," and uh, it's sort of a bleak world, and and maybe uh. You know, maybe maybe asking questions can be just as much of a curse as uh, accepting everything uncritically. Yeah, he says, you know, if you, if you if you question everything, that's you're probably worse off than you just accept it than accepting dogma. You know. But the interesting thing is, it's still he ends up being a skeptic, the same as everybody else is, right? Like, I mean, the of course the hot-headed Irishman is a skeptic, like through and through. But the doctor's a skeptic, but also just a little chiller about it, right? And then the the priest is also a skeptic. Like, he doesn't really believe in everything he teaches. And at one point, the magician gets in his head, is like, do you believe, believe in demons? And he is about to say, of course. And he has to stop himself because he's like, well, I should. I wish I did. He says something along those lines. So, like, even the priest who, like, argues in sort of like abstract terms that oh it would be good for people to believe in this or overall like it's it's a good thing and we should we should like believers like the like the girl because we trust our lives to them and there's something there but if push comes to shove he's not actually believe anything that he's teaching at least not in his bones yeah it's a pretty horrible brand of religion and i think it's cool that chesterton has the conjurer of all people who we eventually find out you know is is like a servant of the devil on some level, uh, push back on the priest and really like prod him. The contrary gets really angry at the priest. I mean, I think the priest is somewhat of a sympathetic character. And I, I think yeah, definitely. is putting some of his own arguments in his mouth, but he's also kind of using him to, uh, to dunk on, on the Anglican church, as far as I can tell. <laughs> That's pretty, yeah, he's like the Catholic trying to, trying to paint all the Anglicans as like, very clever, but ultimately substanceless. Yeah. Yeah. Like no, no. He, let me let me quote it a little bit here because these are some these are some good lines that'll give people a feel for the play. Um. So the the priest Smith says, "You trust a woman with the practical issues of life and death through sleepless hours when a shaking hand or an extra grain would kill." Uh, referring here to the fact that he trusts her to uh, to take care of the nephew while he's going mad. Doctor says yes. But if the woman gets up to go to early service at my church, you call her weak-minded and say that nobody but woman can believe in religion. 
I should never call this woman weak-minded, no, by God, even if she went to church. Yet there are many a strong-minded who believe passionately in going to church. Weren't there as many who believed passionately in Apollo? Now what harm came of believing in Apollo? What a mass of harm may have come from not believing in Apollo. Does it never strike you that doubt can be madness as well as faith? That asking questions may be a disease as well as proclaiming doctrines? You talk of religious mania. Is there no such thing as an irreligious mania? Is there no such thing in the house at the moment? Referring to the, the nephew. Um, so, you know, you get a sense of the way Chesterton writes. And, it, you know, maybe we've just all become uh, much more inarticulate because that, you know, that doesn't that doesn't sound true to life to me. That sounds like in someone reciting an essay, but maybe people were just better uh, cultured and, and more eloquent back then. You know, that exact thought popped into my head as I was reading this because they are, or not reading this, I was watching the play actually, but they're impossibly eloquent. You know, they just, they, they, their speaking is fluid and musical and there are no ums and ahs. I mean, it's stage, right? But I was like, were they actually that good back then? And have we just gotten worse at English? Well, to an extent, anytime you put on a play or a movie, there's a certain, uh, you know, the, the way people speak in movies and plays isn't, isn't totally true to life, but he's kind of taken it to, uh, another level and it doesn't feel, uh very uh realistic to me but maybe maybe in his time maybe that was more it was a little closer to how people actually talked than we would think today maybe i don't know maybe uh, maybe maybe it's just because we're reading things that people have written of course it's not representative of the way they actually talked but the thought popped in my head is like you know am i just bad at english <laughs> and then, you know like i'm very uh, conscious of my uh, eloquence compared to the play at this very moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. But I often feel like I say things in a very a very uh, ham-handed way, you know? Um, so just to read things like this is like, dang, I will never have one-liners quite so tight as as the magician does in this, you know? Tough, tough feeling. Yeah, well, I, I just, I don't. Does the magician get even? Who gets the? I don't think the magician gets the best lines. Yeah, who do you think it is? The niece gets some pretty good lines. She has a few zingers. Yeah, she's a fun character, right? And that's what I say. Like, I'm glad she's there. I'm glad the Duke is there, despite the pushback. Um, just because, like, if they weren't there, this would be all very philosophical and dark and like deep. But she's there. She's like hot headed, and she's very clever, and she just really just like marches around and and you know commands attention and respect and the duke is just stupid and silly right but uh, i think they're good foils for the rest of it all but she speaks well yeah i stand by my and my i stand by my position that uh that she's the wisest character of them all because at the end she really understands the conjurer's situation and then the conjurer's gonna leave he's sort of gonna fall on his sword as you know as an honorable man he's not gonna marry this woman that he loves and then she's like, no, that'd be a mistake. And they end up together. So I don't know. She seems to have some kind of insight that the rest of them don't. Oh, you know how to, you know how to a great line is actually the doctor. Um, this, is too, this is too good. I got to read this. Um, uh, well, you guessed right. I was family physician to the Duke's brother in Ireland. I knew the family pretty well. 
The priest says, I suppose you mean you knew something odd about the family. Well, they saw fairies and that sort of thing. And I suppose to the medical mind, seeing fairies means much the same thing as seeing snakes. Uh, the doctor, well, they were in Ireland. I suppose it's quite correct to see fairies in Ireland. It's like gambling at Monte Carlo. It's quite respectable, respectable. but I draw the line at seeing fairies in England. I do object to their bringing their ghosts and goblins and witches to the poor duke's own backyard and with a yard of my own red lamp. It shows a lack of tact. Um, and then he goes on. Well, the nephew has been in America and it stands to reason you can't see fairies in America. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. That was, that was a good line. I like that, right? It's like a little ding on America. It's like, oh, nobody can see fairies in America, right? No, but I mean, I mean, it's funny. It's funny. Like, it's okay to see fairies in Ireland. And I draw the line and see fairies in England. And then you can't see in America. That's too, I mean, I, I, I got a kick out of that. Um, Which is like classic Chesterton. But I don't know. I was thinking about what you said once, like how she might be the wisest of them all. And she does. She has like a very beautiful philosophy, right? Like, like I pulled up the text right now, but there's a scene where he, the conjurer, in, a, in like a fit of joy, proposes marriage to the woman. And then he immediately backs down. He's like, no, I can't do that to you. And she says, no, I accept. Um, which struck me as kind of weird in the, in the play, but I'm, I guess there's a longer history of them talking in the past, which would make this less ridiculous. People used to get married like that. Like, yeah? That's know, my... crazy. You met this no, dude like... <laughs> I mean, not, maybe not quite that fast, but, you know, within three months of having met. Yeah. I, I guess mean, if, if you read... More, if you read... Um, right off into the sunset and get married then if it's just like oh there's some spark of love makes this story better well you know what i the thought occurred to me as i was watching the play yeah. is someone needs to rework this thing into a movie for the modern age so they are they, they already did make it into a movie i mean i, I think it's actually a it's um bergman what's 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 the guy's uh Igmar Bergman, he turned it into a, a movie called The Magician. It's actually somewhat of a famous movie. Oh, wow. Um, I, but, gotta, I gotta check it out. Like, there's a lot that's going on in the play that doesn't resonate with modern viewers because, you know, we're not, there's not a spiritualist fad going on right now. Yeah, right? the implicit warning to stay away from, like, spiritualism kind of falls on, on like, I don't know, like, we don't, we don't do that anymore, you know? Yeah, or, or it's not like, you know, like, J.K. Rowling is, like, super, like, like sincerely believes in fairies, right? <laughs> like, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm trying to think of you, who would be, you be the equivalent of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? Um, I don't know, like... Um, She's probably pretty good, right? Like, if she was going around talking about, like, the magic of fairies and stuff like that, it'd be, it'd be pretty weird, but... Imagine if that was normal, I guess. And there were large parts of the world that agreed with her decision that fairies exist. Like, yeah. Exactly. So, and, and, and a lot of the, you know, you know, the idea of there being, a, I don't know, like the, there's no, there's no real equivalent to the, to, to the, to the role that the Anglican priest would have played in English society. But I think you could rewrite this thing. You could rework it into a really great modern movie. Like, I 
I think you actually would have it be an Episcopalian priest in the American context. And then you can't have a duke, but who who would it be instead of a duke? It would be like... Uh, a Silicon Valley billionaire or something. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's too hard-headed, though. You need Maybe someone with inherited wealth. Yeah, maybe a softie. The billionaires, they all have like very strong and, and typically strange philosophies, I think. Uh, maybe that's fair, yeah. Maybe more of a, maybe even a writer. Like an eccentric writer. Hmm. Um, he's willing to entertain anything. Then there's, there there would have, the doctor, I think you could could still be a doctor, actually. Yeah. But or maybe some, kind of, maybe some kind of academic. Um, and then the, the Irishman, what would you make him? Well, he would be like, he'd be like really into Richard Dawkins. Right? Yeah, like, that's fair. Um, you gotta give him a job, though, right? Like, would he just would he be the Silicon Valley bro? Then would he just be in finance or something? No, he wouldn't be in finance. He would be maybe, yeah, maybe finance, maybe, maybe Silicon, maybe he. I think a, tech. I think tech is a good place for him. What? Yeah. Tech, yeah, tech is a good place for him. Maybe you make him a programmer at like at like Salesforce or something. You know, I don't know, pick a random company. It's not important though, but. Um, I could see this being a fun movie to watch, yeah. But, you know, the thing is, you, you, I don't know, you'd have to, you'd have to update the way the movie would handle the supernatural, because I, I don't think it would work for modern audiences. Right? You can't just be like, you can't just transition to like, oh, this is real, and then people just accept it. Like, that's not how people. I don't think that would fly anymore. I, I think it totally would. It just would be considered part of the movie, right? I mean, like people watch horror movies all the time where they talk about demons and the supernatural. And nobody blinks an eye because it's just the movie. If you yeah, wanted it to, I mean, in the typical horror movie, it's not an open question, right? Like the 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 the, the play kind of starts leaving it a little bit open. Like, is this real or not? Yeah, you see what I don't think people would not be able to like have a little sort of suspended belief for the movie and enjoy the movie, right? They just wouldn't walk away with it. Yeah, I just I guess the transition from like, is this real? Is this fake? To like, oh, clearly it's demons. Like it was just a little, too, <laughs> it's a little too much for me. It's I like, agree. I think I think a more elegant play, maybe you know, I mean, obviously Chesterton was a brilliant guy, but. You know, a more thoughtful play, a more thoughtful approach would have been to sort of keep it in the air for longer, or even for the entire duration of the play, because then it's a little bit cooler and you walk away chewing on it, chewing on it a little bit more. But I think Chester. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's the solution necessarily to never resolve the issue. I just, I just think, I just don't think you can resolve it that quickly. Hmm. But <laughs> in the play, he's he's under some constraints here, you know, like. Yeah. You can't keep people there for five hours, you know? Yeah, still. I, I see where you guys are coming from. It was very abrupt. But if he wanted to get where he wanted to go, he there's no way but to make it abrupt. Like, he has to sort of, like, whiplash everybody into a demons. Definitely demons. Uh, otherwise, you're never going to get there by the end of the play. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like, you know, how would you pull that off in, in the modern context? I mean, I don't. I don't, I don't know that you could, right? But 
I don't know. I I should write the screenplay. That would be that. That would be pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> Anyways, but back watch back to the wisdom of of the lady. You know, um, what did she say? He he proposed marriage. She she says yes. He says no. Like you know, um, I could never marry you. And he says it's nonsense. It's nonsense. My mother was a lady, and she married a dying fiddler who tramped the roads. And the mixture plays the cat and banjo with my body and soul. I don't know what that means. Um, I can see my mother now cooking food in dirtier and dirtier lodgings, darning socks with weaker and weaker eyes when she might have worn pearls by consenting to be a rational person. And the girl says, and she might have grown pearls by be consenting to be an oyster, which is just... That's a good line. Man. Yeah, it's a good line. And then the mother says, there was little pleasure in her life. And Patricia, and this is a line that really stuck with me, is like, there was little pleasure in everybody's life. The question is, what kind? We, can, we can't turn life into a pleasure. But we can choose such pleasures as are worthy of us in our immortal souls. Your mother chose, and I have chosen. Um, and whether or not you agree with her choice, it's just a beautiful moment that she says, like, you know, damn all the wealth. I'm going to throw myself into poverty just so we can be in love together, you know? Yeah, and that's, that's, another, that's another another touch that's, that's a little bit uh, hard to swallow nowadays. The, the uh, we, we bet... Uh... We, we we met two weeks ago and i was pretending to be a fairy let's get married <laughs> you only found out i wasn't today so let's get married <laughs> um gosh but i like her she's a very likable sympathetic character in the play yeah i i, I agree I, I i see chesterton more as trying to make a synthesis between the niece and the nephew right the nephew who won't believe in anything, the niece who will believe in everything. And he's kind of trying to, to sort of, uh, kind of, he, like he's, he's got, a, he's got, the problem with the play is he's got a viewpoint that he's, that he's pushing, which I, I think that that's what didn't work for me is that it's more of an essay. It's not, and then a play, it's not really about the characters. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Ryan. I agree. He had a point that he wanted to push, and that point, like, like, basically was the constraint for everything else in the play. So even if he did a pretty great job, or at least a decent job, minimum in all the parts, you still get the sense that like the whole point was just to give everybody a take home message. You know. I agree. I've read. I've read um, one or I think two of his novels now, and. Um... And it just felt like a kind of packaging for his philosophy, which was very interesting, but it's it's almost like a discourse with himself. So it's a very sort of different kind of thing to read than most of what we read, I would say. Definitely not about the characters. So, you know, it did it did have a very good run. So maybe uh maybe to audiences back then it didn't feel so uh I don't know, didactic, or maybe maybe that's how plays were back then. I don't know. I mean, here's the takeaway: Did you guys enjoy this play? Yes, no. Yes, I did. Regardless, largely no. Yeah, so there there are gums. Like some people like did genuinely enjoy it, even though it has a sort of like ultimately lecturing feel to it. I'd say that I did enjoy it in the end. Like. If I had, you know, I, I'm not a huge play person, but if, I don't know, if the whole family had gone out to this play and shelled out good money for it, in the end, I would have been like, yeah, okay, worth it. But it wouldn't have been a resounding, like, oh my gosh, amazing time, so worth it, you know? Um, yeah, well, I, 
I also watched it end on the performance. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But like, I guess we can't disentangle that. But let's try to disentangle it and just look at the plays. Like, do you think it was good, well written, worth it? As I think ultimately yes, but it's not going to be like. I don't know, like, if I had to pick a favorite play, I wouldn't pick this play. I would probably pick Fiddler on the Roof or something, you know? <laughs> I don't think you could really put them in the same genre, but... <laughs> no, right, but you gotta pick one. I don't know, like, I, yeah. I, I'm i not much of a connoisseur of plays or movies or any of those things, so I'm very comfortable saying that's my favorite movie, right? Uh, Cross-genre, uh, without too much without too much hesitation. But, you know, I don't know. I do think he's on to something here. And, like, I think you could... Someone someone needs to adapt this for modern audiences. Like, this needs oh, to be... They would, have to ruin the, they would have to remove the message. Because if you try to keep the message, then it keeps that sort of vaguely lecturing feel in the background, right? And if you remove the message just to keep the fun story, right? Then, like, you can make an interesting story and it'd be nice. But then it's not really G.K. Chesterton anymore, right? You've kind of taken his defining feature away from his from his like creative works which is that they're trying to tell you some something about his philosophy closing thoughts i think he flubbed it a little i like him a lot but i think the idea of niece nephew conjurer priest doctor is a really good one and i really enjoyed the middle third of the play but the opening was a little weird, and the end was a little weird for me. Yeah, the opening was super weird. I kind of glossed over that, actually, now that yeah. I think about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a flawed work. I, I just, I, I do think there's something there. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's something there. I think it has to do with, like, in, in the context of the play, the supernatural is definitively real, and they still have to lie about it. To, to the nephew and to themselves. And there's a psychological reason why they have to lie about it. So I think I, there's, 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 there's something, I think there's something, I think there's a psychological insight there that's pretty, pretty good. Um, the, the, there's something, there's something there that I can't quite put my finger on, but I think, I, I think it is saying something about human nature that, that that there's a certain part of us that wouldn't want to believe in any of the stuff, even if it were true, right? Just leaving aside, leaving aside that G.K. Chesterton pretty definitively believes that it is, like there, there's. I think he's making a point about how it is actually very scary to believe in in this stuff, and it is sort of dangerous, uh, not only at a, a practical level but a psychological level, and then. Um, I just, I just think this thing needs to be. This thing is due for a remake, right? Bergman did it, and now someone, someone, someone new needs to do it, right? So this needs to be like cleaned up a little bit and remade. Yeah. Also, that's a good point, friend. That I didn't, that I didn't bring up. But one of the things I liked about the play was the point that I think, and it's a very sort of good and applicable and sort of robust point, even to this day, is that people are often committed to rationalist or materialist ideologies with a certain kind of religious or dogmatic commitment or, or fervor. And I think that's sort of a good thing to be on guard about. 
um, just to sort of always be thinking about what you're bringing to the table and why you want certain things to be true. So that was one. Nice point. It's very, it's very easy to come up with a psychological story about why people believe in religion or believe in the paranormal, right? You can, you, you know, and people have been doing it forever, you know, you, you, you can, you can say, well, you know, people need to believe in something to deal with death or they need to believe into something because they're weak minded or they need like, like it's, it's very easy to do, but he's kind of doing the other thing. He's saying what, why, what psychological reasons do people have to disbelieve? Right. And that's actually, that's an interesting question. And one that I think people think about a little bit less. Yeah. I think it's nice. I think it's a, it's a slick move. Um, and he explores it well. All right. Uh, well, yeah. All right. All right. Quanch, thanks for coming on for one that you weren't a, you weren't a fan of. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. When I said generally no, I think that was a little strong. I think no, no. It's okay. It's okay. You, you're allowed to dislike it. Own your dislike. I think it's also good, right? I mean, that we don't we don't just like sit here and heat praise up everything on everything we read or. Well, you know what we need to do. Like. We're, we're going to wrap it up in this thought. We need. They're having, yeah. you know, you know how people sometimes like hate watch movies. We need to do hate read episodes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I have some strong opinions about the loved ones. So when we get around to oh, that, is, is that a out. hate read episode? Okay. Hey guys, this is Poppy, and thanks for listening to another great episode of the Brothers F Podcast. Why don't you do us a favor and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and send us any feedback or episode ideas or just anything you'd like to reach out to us about at brothersfpod at gmail.com. Thanks, guys.